Generating traffic and sales can be a challenge for online merchants. But selling on the Walmart marketplace puts your products in front of millions of customers who shop on walmart.com. And right now, sellers who join Walmart Marketplace can save up to 50% on referral and fulfillment fees for the first 90 days. So get started today. Head over to marketplace.walmart.com savings. That's marketplace.walmart.com savings. Welcome to e-commerce conversations, a podcast by practical e-commerce. What is going on, Internet? Eric Manholtz here with another e-commerce conversations. I've got Jamie Schmidt on the other end. I don't know how she would describe her, but I'm describing her as uh, the queen of natural deodorant. She was in the space uh, long before a lot of other uh, players, and they grew an amazing business and were sold to Unilever back in 2017. So I'm lucky to have her on the other end, and we're going to be talking about her story a little bit, and uh, maybe we can learn a couple things or two. Welcome, Jamie. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. The pleasure's all mine. So uh, uh, read up on your story. I'm, uh, uh, as our listeners know, I'm in the grooming space as well. So it's really impressive what you've done in building this business. If you want to give like a real quick rundown to how you did it and kind of the ins and outs. Yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, I'll, I proudly own your uh, title of natural deodorant queen or <laughs> that you've assigned to me. It's, um, you know, we, we Schmitz truly did, you know, lead the charge with this, you know, shift towards natural products, particularly in uh, the, the deodorant space. When Schmitz first came to market back in 2010, there were really only a few natural brands on the shelves. You know, you had your Tom's Maine and Jason, um, Nature's Gate, a few of those, but. Besides that, you know, in terms of the indie brands, they just didn't really exist. So I really, you know, was in a really beautiful timing when I when I brought um, Schmitz to market. And part of that was intentional. You know, I, I saw the opportunity. I understood that there was certainly a need to to shake up the space uh, with some new offerings. But a part of it too was a little bit of luck. You know, I had been on this quest to find, you know, satisfaction in my work and had tried all sorts of different career paths and side hustles and hobbies and you know, nothing really spoke to me until I landed on formulating natural products. And in Portland, you know, there was no shortage of opportunity to take your products out to market and get in front of your customers. It's just a really opportune city um, for that. And that was really what kickstarted Schmitz was these face-to-face interactions with customers at the farmer's market. So you started off in the farmer's market. How long were you acquiring customers that way? I did that for about a year specifically just markets. And then I sort of, I started treading into stores, you know, within, within the year, um, and then uh, started taking on some online as well. But things happened fast. When I first started selling publicly, I really didn't have much of a, you know, plan for the business. I, I knew I enjoyed what I was doing. I knew that customers were loving the product. You know, they were telling me at, at the markets, you know, how much the product had changed their lives. And, but I didn't quite see the major potential, you know, right away. But once I was in retail, it became clear that there was such a demand for a new natural deodorant that worked. And some of the frustrations around deodorants at the time were one, the ingredient offerings, right? We were on this sort of, you know, path towards more clean, healthy products, but deodorant was just not quite there yet. Uh, most of the deodorants were still full of, you know, chemicals. A lot of them were using aluminum, you know, as antiperspirants. And there was just opportunity to do more there. And then also, with branding, the options on the on the shelves were really 
just kind of kind of cliche, the few naturals that did exist just all sort of looked the same. The fragrances were really predictable with lavender, just kind of a, a bland aesthetic. And so I recognized the opportunity to not just you know offer something that worked, that was healthy, but that looked different and was a little more, I guess, modern and forward-looking. I wanted naturals to be available to the masses. I wanted them to not just be for a niche customer group. I saw opportunity to reach other customers that really hadn't even considered, you know, that alternative. How did you get your um, foot in the door for your first retailer? And and was it like a grocery store or uh, what kind of strategy did you have? Yeah, you know, it it was a pretty organic process. I had retailers um, approaching me at my booth at the markets and saying, you know, the customers had been coming into the stores looking for the brand. So I was fortunate in the sense that a lot of these retail accounts sort of fell into my lap in the early days. But once I, you know, saw the potential in retail, I I quickly made that a part of my my daily work really to reach out. And I was going into local stores. I was a new mom. I had my my son was, gosh, a few months old. <laughs> and I'd take him into the stores with me and, and, and pitch my product. And in Portland, there's a lot of opportunity with co-ops and natural grocery stores. And then once I had really saturated the market here. I, you know, made my way up to Seattle area and just the West Coast, you know, the Pacific Northwest in general just was really welcoming to this type of product. And then within a year or two, I was actually had national distribution that really just played out again, really organically. A lot of it was word of mouth. I had connected with some bloggers pretty early on who had heard about Schmitz, wanted to try it. And then they talked about it and people wanted to carry it. This was back when YouTube influence was really strong. I think that was one place where a lot of people went to learn about new products. And so that was a really effective way to to spread the word about Schmitz that didn't cost anything. Yeah. So you guys, to to scale this growth, so you, you talked about bringing on a national retailer. We had to do that as well. And it was a quite a big investment up front. Um, mm-hmm. You guys worked with investors in the early days for funding that or... or- or is it just self-funded? Yeah, Schmitz was funded out of um, you know our, my and my husband's personal bank account, which was real real small and humble at the time too. You know, we had both been social workers before I started the company. He continued on as a social worker the first couple of years, and we were you know kind of living off of his salary. But then I also had a couple side hustles too, which really I saw as the seed money for the business. So what that really looked like was some private label products that I was making for like local spas. I also hooked up with a local retailer who was selling DIY kits online. So I was making these DIY lotion kits and things. So it was all, you know, really relevant to the work I was doing with Schmitz, but it was a nice way to to get a little bit extra money that I could put right back into the business. Okay. And those are done under like different brand names. They weren't associated with Schmitz. Uh, the the private label work I was associating with Schmitz, so I would partner up with um, the spa, and I would say you know a joint project between the spa and Schmitz and Naturals. So it was also a nice way to kind of get the word out about, about my brand too. Okay, it, and were you guys manufacturing your product as well? Yes, so that started in our kitchen, um, very small house here in, in Southeast Portland, and yeah, so I was starting with batch sizes of you know maybe twenty deodorants on the stove top, and that just continued to to grow as demand went up and. Uh, my first warehouse I was about maybe two and a half, three years after I had made my first deodorant. And um, that was right around the corner from my house. Um, it was a small space that had been converted for my use. I found a landlord who was just really flexible and willing to work with me on really flexible terms. And we converted this kind of old beat up space into um, a place where I could hire a few people and increase my batch sizes and have you know daily U- USPS and UPS pickups. And then from there, we we scaled more. I mean, we had 
gosh, three warehouse moves within four years. It was just absurd, the growth. And it was always really hard to predict. You know, we don't, you don't know how fast you're going to grow and how much space you're going to need. And so we were outgrowing our spaces really fast and, you know, probably had some poor judgment calls there with some space planning, but um, it's not easy. And, you know, you're talking about bringing in equipment, right? You have the the mixing machines and the melting pots and the labeling lines and um, just building out these, you know, full assembly lines and uh, shipping departments. And, you know, next thing you know, we had 150 employees working across two shifts. What was your decision for making it in-house versus working with contract manufacturers? Uh, I, I really liked the control and it would, it had been born out of you know, just my own personal love for making. And I think that was, you know, is really unique. I know a lot of brands start with a a business idea. And then, you know, the first step is to find a contract manufacturer to make it. Uh, But for me, I started more with the product, which then turned into the business idea. So just naturally, you know, I kept manufacturing in-house. I really enjoyed it. I liked being close to the product, but it definitely had a lot of stresses. I think it's it's a whole different way of doing business because there's so much that can go wrong and so many things to learn. And pretty incredible when I look back and just think that I, you know, was running this full <laughs> manufacturing facility and with zero experience or knowledge going into it. Yeah, that's pretty wild. We've taken the route of, you know, designing and formulating our products in-house and then working with appropriate manufacturers based on their capabilities, mm-hmm. which, you know, I look at it as it's, it's essentially like two different businesses because you have to run a business through the mindset of a manufacturer. And then you have to also run the business through the mindset of a marketer. And right. I would imagine there's a lot of, I want to say hostility between the divisions, but a lot of conflict over what's going on. Yeah, that's so true. And I, you know, one thing I just, I loved about in-house manufacturing is you just, you have so much control over things like limited edition offerings. When you're working with, you know, co-packers and contract manufacturers, the lead times are so significant and there's so much planning involved. And whereas if you're making in-house, you can just, you know, pull something off so, so quickly. And there's definitely huge, you know, huge benefits to both. But I, I did end up working with contract manufacturers later. Once the demand for the deodorant was so high, you know, once we had launched in Target, Costco, Walmart, we just couldn't keep up internally, even with the two shifts. Um, so we did take on a secondary co-packer. But that was not easy because our deodorant formula was so different from any other deodorant formulas that were out there. So these co-packers hadn't worked with, you know, these type of ingredients. And so they were causing problems, clogging up the machines. And just, uh, so there was a huge learning process that had to go into, um, you know, some of these co-packer relationships and that in itself was, was a challenge and something new for them. Yeah. I would imagine it makes it a little bit easier having done it yourself where you can share some of that knowledge versus someone who's coming in, just working with a manufacturer who was just like, nah, we can't do that. Which I think a lot of co-packers kind of go that route. Yeah. Real, real quick on that. When I add, you know, they, I can see co-packers losing patients in that situation, but they were so determined to make it work because they saw, you know, these huge POs from, from Walmart and Target and Costco and they, you know, they wanted to fill it. And so they were determined to make it work. Yeah. Well, that's when you know you have the right partner. Uh, yeah. Let, let's go back to the, the limited edition strategy. Was that primarily for your retailers or was that for your direct to consumer channels? That was mostly DC. 
it was great because it was really like a great opportunity to keep strong traction coming to our website once we did have such widespread retail distribution because the DTC had been so strong for us. And, you know, once we launched in, in places like Target, of course, there's the concern that that's just going to die off completely. And so having the limited edition sense was, was a great way to keep people coming to the site. That was one part of our strategy. We had other things we would, you know, we had, of course, had to consider free shipping options and regular promotions to keep those steady sales online as well. But one thing about the limited edition sense that worked out well for us is, you know, if we had any overstock at the end of the season or, or what have you, um, we had retailers like TJ Maxx who would buy out all that extra inventory and then be able to sell it in stores. So it was the perfect sort of way to transition out of, out of the seasonal sense to have a retailer like TJ Maxx. Yeah. With these retailers, are you working through like brokers or distributors or directly with uh, the partners? Yeah, a little bit of both. Uh, some of the earlier retailers, you know, were managed just directly. I was responsible for managing them and, and really enjoyed it. Um, but as we got bigger, you know, we bringing on brokers helped a lot, you know, in, in navigating some of these relationships and opening up new doors. Um, and then distributors too. Some retailers required that we work with a distributor because they didn't want to buy direct. But partnering with the distributor had other advantages too because that that also opened up you know new doors that we otherwise wouldn't have access to. Have you found any kind of issues with, you know, like gray market sales or, you know, a race to the bottom for pricing? I think our biggest, yeah, the biggest struggle was Amazon. I I actually fought that for the first few years. I just didn't want to sell on there. But then we sort of lost control and people started selling Schmitz on there. And so I thought, well, if they're going to do it, I have to do it too. And I mean, it was a great channel for us. We had huge you know revenues there, but it just was so tricky to manage the pricing on there. And and not just pricing, but you know, quality of the posts and the photos people were using, and the packaging that they were shipping our products out in, and and you can hire people to help you know manage your your pricing and to make sure people are abiding by the you know suggested retail price, but it doesn't always you know it, it only does so much really. People find ways around it, and <laughs> yeah, it's it's like whack a mole. <laughs> Amazon itself is just a whew, it's a beast. We've gone the route of, of just working directly with our retailers and subsequently we don't sell on Amazon either. That's something that, that we wanted to avoid. Have you avoided it successfully? Yeah. I mean, there's always going to be the arbitrage play where someone buys it on Target and then they yeah. sell it on Amazon or they buy it on our store and sell it. But we, because um, we have the copyrights of our photography, we require them to essentially put their own photos up. Oh, okay. Which means they take crappy photos and it kind of looks like it's stolen product or janky product. Right. So I'm, I'm actually, I'm one of these guys where I'm okay with our brand looking bad on Amazon because there is no official partner to sell on Amazon. And uh, every once in a while we'll have a, a vendor who, you know, we, we have agreements that they don't sell on Amazon and we'll find out who they are and, and they lose their rights to it. So, but it is, you know, a little bit of that whack-a-mole process. Mm -hmm. And they'll sell under a different name usually, right? Then oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I was just going to do a little bit of bitching about the, the shady sellers on Amazon. Yeah, there's a lot to say about that. And, you know, our turning point was really, I, I had a feature on, on Fox News of all places. <laughs> and uh, once I was on TV, just the Amazon potential just exploded. So I had one of our e-commerce retailers that had been selling Schmitz on their website started selling on Amazon after this Fox News feature. And then the, the, her sales just exploded. And so I wanted to keep up with it. And I thought, dang, she's making bank just selling my brand on Amazon because of this one TV feature. And so I need to compete with that and, and have some you know guidelines around it. And How is your 
company broken up between direct to consumer and retail? Um, yeah, I'd say we were probably about a 70% retail, 30% e-com once we were around the acquisition time with Unilever. You know, it was a struggle once we had gone into mass retail to, to really keep the D2C strong, but we did, we did great. I mean, we, I'm impressed with the way we were able to do that and through, you know, just huge ad spends online. I mean, that's really where a lot of the strategy came in. And I mentioned the the limited edition offerings and that sort of thing. We had subscriptions, which helped too. And then like, talk about like how the, the business is structured to be able to, in my opinion, run two different businesses. Did you have like a team that were split across or uh, how was your team set up to, to handle that? Yeah, we, we had a marketing team that was um, headed up by my husband, Chris Cantino. He ran really the whole D2C channel. He was also responsible for our brand team and our digital marketing. And then the wholesale side, I mostly managed. So everything was, you know, we were, we worked well across teams. I mean, we're also a married couple, so <laughs> naturally we were having conversations about it. But we were all, you know, based within the same office. Schmidt's headquarters are here in Portland, and we, you know, all sat closely together and, and just worked side by side with the strategy and it worked nicely. And now that, you know, Unilever owns Schmitz, those teams are still in place. Actually, we still have our headquarters here in downtown Portland. Um, we're still managing the sales mostly from here with um, some extension over in our Unilever's headquarters in New Jersey. So uh, Michael Camarada, is that how you pronounce his last name? Mm-hmm. He came into the business in, uh, when did he join the business? Uh, Michael joined me as a partner in 2015. Okay. And tell me a little bit about that. Were you at a point in the business where you weren't scaling smoothly or? Yeah, well, actually at that point, we were growing very, very fast. And I wasn't looking for any, you know, sort of outside partnerships, um, but I was approached by a couple people. It was Michael and his business partner, Kevin Schmidt. His last name was Schmidt as well. They had heard about Schmidt's through Kevin because he had some, you know, his, his last name was the same and had just, you know, discovered us that way. And the two of them approached me and said they were interested in a, some kind of partnership. And we looked at a few different, you know, ways to structure that. We, we, we first actually had been talking about some private label opportunities and profit sharing and things like that. But what we landed on was a partnership and then we worked together for for, uh, the couple of years leading up to the acquisition. Okay. How did you decide to to bring on a, an additional partner? What was the thought process behind that? Um, they just they convinced me actually. As I said, you know, I wasn't I wasn't really searching. You know, I had other people approaching me, sort of interested in investing and things, but I was not looking for investment. The partnership opportunity was more attractive to me because I thought if I'm going to bring somebody on, I want them to bring more than you know than than capital. And so, um, what Kevin and Michael had presented was access to you know some partnerships like um, some retailers that I hadn't yet explored and some strategies around uh, marketing and things that I was interested in pursuing. And it worked well. We had you know different skill sets, and um, together we're able to you know, continue growing. Would you say that he's kind of taken over the, the operational role or the, the vision role or? No, he's no longer with Schmitz. I continued to lead the company as, you know, CEO up until the acquisition. And then he, he stayed with them for about a year and a half, but he's, he's moved on to something new. Oh, okay. Okay. So yeah, you guys, you, you grew it to, uh, I would, from my research, y'all were doing about mid, mid eight figures when y'all uh, were acquired by Unilever. And a nine figure acquisition. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 So I want to talk a little bit about that transition. You've, you've built a company that is your last name. And, uh, as as me, another entrepreneur who wants to build a business in his last name and, and the thought of selling the business, I always have this fear of if I sell it, you know, what if they, they tarnish my name, you know, it's always going to be linked. 
Is that a concern you ever had or? Yeah, I think naturally, yes. But I also, you know, at the same time, really found security in knowing that my name was on the brand because it it would be forever mine, right? And the legacy could live on. And so I, you know, I trusted the team that was at Schmitz when the acquisition happened. I also really got to know Unilever well during our conversations. And I, I knew for sure that they were the right partner for us. And I, I felt comfortable moving forward. But yeah, you know, it's it's different, of course, when you're no longer responsible for the day-to-day operations. And, you know, you hope that everybody's going to make decisions that, you know, fit your overall, you know, long-term goals and vision for the business when you started it. And But I've been happy with the way things have gone. I worked really hard to develop a roadmap uh, for Schmitz before the acquisition. So I knew what the future years looked like, at least short term. And uh, I'm still involved. I um, am working as the brand's spokesperson and will always be the founder and um, you know, really have a, a nice, healthy relationship with the team. So let's dig into the um, the sales process. There's a lot of big players in there. Unilever, of course, in MySpace, they, they acquired a Dollar Shave Club for like a, a billion billion dollars or something obscene. I, I assume you guys were were pitched to, to multiple companies or was it just a relationship with the Unilever that you all had established? Uh, we did have several companies on the table at the same time. We brought on Goldman Sachs to help broker the deal and they were really great for soliciting other interest. And so we had about you know four different large companies that were interested and were, you know, we were doing diligence with and having conversations and meeting with and had narrowed it down to a couple that were a little bit more intensive with the diligence. And then um, Unilever was just a clear winner for me. I, I really understood you know, their values and their mission and their vision for the brand. And they had no intentions of shaking up the team or, or doing things differently. They knew the value that Schmitz had had built and the brand equity that we were bringing and just, they couldn't replicate it. And, and it was clear that they understood that. And Gosh, I'm going back to that that time now. And it's such a scary, intense time because you know no deal is done until it's done, right? Like anything could go wrong, and people change their mind at the last minute. And so, you know, I kind of had my heart set on Unilever pretty early, and so seeing that through to the end was a pretty emotional and stressful time. What was uh, the the reason to to sell simply to to deleverage your risk from the business, or uh, was this always the vision when when you started back in 2010? Well, when I started, I I never envisioned, you know, first of all, the company growing to as large as it had and also selling it. It just was never in my thinking. Um, but, you know, later on, as as we continued to grow and the company took on, you know, a whole, whole life outside of me and I understood there was real potential in partnering with somebody like Unilever to continue to, to drive us forward, to expand globally. You know, we had, we had pretty strong international distribution that I'm proud to have built. But I knew there was more potential in working with somebody like them. And then access to consumer insights and, you know, distribution channels and raw materials, supply chain. And yeah, it made sense to me. And you you mentioned, you know, de-risking. I think that was, there was certainly a huge, you know, load off my shoulders when the acquisition happened. And, you know, I was now in a place where, yeah, I didn't have to carry the weight of leading a company with 150 employees and, you know, being responsible for their livelihood and all the challenges and, and risks that come along with that. And yeah, a combination of things. And it was, I also looked forward to, you know, this next phase of my life. And I didn't know what that looked like exactly, but I've taken on a, some new projects now that I'm really excited about. And I'm able to implement, you know, all the knowledge that I learned from Schmitz and share it uh, to help inspire other people. Yeah. I would assume from what I've heard with most acquisitions, you kind of get these golden handcuffs, right? Where you, you talk about the deal not being done until it's done. And mm-hmm. a lot of times that's years after the paperwork signed, right? Was, was there a transition 
phase for you to be part of the company or is this still kind of like your baby and you want to, you really want to lead and be that spokesperson for him? Yeah, right now, you know, there's no end date to, to my involvement. Both sides see the value in it. And I think it's something that will continue. Yeah. So I'm, I'm happy to to have a hand, but not be, you know, kind of burdened with some of the, the daily operational stresses. To me, that sounds like the perfect kind of role. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not an operational person at all. And my company thanks me for, for not being involved in that. I never thought I was either. And I kind of, you know, got thrown into it and, you know, owned it while I had to. And looking back on it, it's pretty incredible the things we have to learn when we're, when we're thrown in, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's the, I mean, that's the thrill of entrepreneurship. You always yeah. do what it takes to, to make your business happy and healthy. So now that you've settled into your role at Schmitz, your new role as a spokesperson, what, what do you have next? What, what kind of projects are you working on? Um, there's a few things in the works. And you know, one I'm most excited about is our investment fund color that my husband, Chris, and I started. Focus is really on consumer goods and, you know, having grown Schmitz and gone through that whole experience of um, learning, you know, all the ropes of what it takes to scale a business and, and sell it. You know, we, we have so much to offer these new brands. And so I think one thing that makes us unique is that we, you know, we do have this hands-on experience that we can offer in addition to capital where a lot of investors, you know, just bring the money. We really focus on underrepresented entrepreneurs. That's where we see a need for change and, and really great opportunity. And so most of our investments are in women and people of color. And I've also written a book. It's all about my journey of starting and growing Schmitz, and it has a lot of tangible uh, takeaway lessons for entrepreneurs. It's called Supermaker, Crafting Business on Your Own Terms, and it uh, releases in September, September 8th. Oh, that's that's fun. Um, yeah. Man, I mean, writing a book is another daunting thing. It, to me, it seems more daunting than building a, a multi-million dollar business. It's definitely a different sort of challenge. I think the best part of it was looking back on like my whole experience of growing Schmitz and seeing how much I had learned and grown personally and going back to like those early emails and, <laughs> you know, just re- reliving the whole experience. It was really fun. And now it's all, you know, my whole story is just packaged in a, in a pretty book and the legacy will live on. And it's fun to sort of wrap it all up and into a book. That's fun. What, one question uh, I, I wanted to ask that I, I missed on. When you were doing the bids to, to sell the business, what were the companies interested in? Like, what, what did they want to see from you guys? Were there certain profitability percentages? Were there certain growth metrics? Were there certain distribution between wholesale and direct-to-consumer percentages that they're looking at? Yeah. I mean, they, first off, just they saw our sales and what we had accomplished and what we were on track to do and just wanted a piece of it. I think the biggest attraction was that we, you know, Schmitz was a natural brand that they just didn't have in their portfolio yet. They have, you know, a number of, of deodorant brands and personal care products, but they just didn't have that natural one that with high performance and with, you know, really cult customer following. And so what we'd already created was was really attractive to them and they understood the potential ahead of us too. You know, we had a product roadmap that was built out. We had just launched toothpaste and bar soaps and body washes and had a whole other a lot of other um, products in the in the pipeline as well. And so all of it was was just really attractive to Unilever. Okay. So there weren't, uh, it wasn't like, uh, I guess in the negotiation phase, they weren't like, oh man, you're, you're D to C. We were hoping for, you know, 80% of the business versus retail. And I guess they saw the potential more globally to, to expand and, and throw fuel into the fire. Yeah. And they, I mean, they did really value the D to C strategies that we had used at Schmitz and saw potential to 
to learn from us, to apply to their other brands. So that was really cool for them to just see the potential to learn, you know, from us and and to to use it across their portfolio. And when we when we sold to Unilever, you know, we our our D 2 C was we were really heavily invested in it. We were spending about three hundred thousand um, dollars online, you know, on ads, and it, a lot of that was for D 2 C, but it also you know translated over to retail too. There certainly was value. In, in online ads um, that translated to retail accounts too and didn't just bring customers to our website, but just provided overall exposure for the brand. Um, so our spend, you know, up until the end was was really high and, and with strong results. Yeah. Sweet. Well, is there, uh, what I like to ask is where should people follow you? Where should they learn more about you? What should they do next? Well, I, I would love for people to check out my book. You know, it's something that I've been working on for a while. Um, the release date was um, delayed due to COVID-19. So I'm really eager to get it out into the world. And you can find that on supermaker.com slash book. Also, my, I have a personal website, jamieschmidt.info. Um, and then on social, you know, it's just Jamie Schmidt for Twitter and Instagram. It's J-A-I-M-E Schmidt. And yeah, probably the best place to keep up with what I'm up to. Well, I uh, really appreciate you taking the the time out of your day to share your story. I, I really enjoyed it. I'm very impressed with what you've built, the queen of natural deodorant. Uh, <laughs> thanks for being on the show, Jamie. And to everyone out there, cheers and keep on growing. <laughs>